Okay. So uh, I just want to invite you to join me for a word of prayer as we open God's word and as we just spend some time together. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, we we come before you today, and as it's been in a as it's been a very eventful two weeks, I just want to pray that as we open your word, as we share together, as we study, uh, I just want to ask that your spirit would step into this place, that you would minister to us. Um, Father, as we explore this idea of uh, sharing our faith, uh, I just want to pray that you would give us wisdom and insights as we take these concepts and apply them. As we are living in a world that is increasingly secular, um, I pray that you would uh, teach us how to share our experience and our encounters with you with the with the community outside of the church. Father, I also want to lift up those who are unwell. Um, there are many of us who have um, either caught colds or just um, are, are are physically in need of your healing, and so I just want to pray that you would, um, as the master physician, that you would place your healing hand upon our church community. Um, I also want to pray for those who are just feeling down and out, as uh, as lockdown has this tendency of um, just making us feel sad and. I just pray that you would give us the sense that you are here with us, that you would give us the resilience, uh, that you would give us the ability to connect with one another in meaningful ways and to provide support and encouragement to each other. Um, as as these lockdowns, um, as this lockdown um, um, comes to an end, I just want to pray that yeah, as we interact with each other, we would really be able to reconnect as a community. So we thank you for hearing our prayers, Father. We ask these things in your name. Amen. So as I mentioned before, um, getting back into our series of six ways to share your faith, uh, part two. And uh, I want to start with a confession. Um, rather than being part two, this is more uh, attempt number two. Uh, after last time I shared, Jin Hatomi, you sounded incredibly heretical. And... <laughs> Um, so I'm going to try again. And, uh, the difference in approach here is instead of explaining, um, every aspect of the six models of contextual theology, and just even that statement alone is such a mouthful. Um, I'm just going to tell you why each of these models are meaningful to me. Now, if I were to define contextual theology, it's basically the study of how God reveals himself to different people at different times. And uh, there are different scholars who have kind of come up with these six different ways in which God reveals himself. And so we're going to, ex- we're going to be exploring those, uh, those six different ways. Um, and, and I wanted to share this with you because... Um, When we explore the six different ways in which God does this, um, then we can show how in each model or within each model, um, how we can use that model for witnessing. We we live in this religious climate, in this environment where uh, it's where, where the world is becoming more and more secular. And, and people are not that interested in God's will or scripture. I mean, if, if someone has a free Sunday or a free afternoon, the natural default isn't, oh, I really want to understand and know God. I'm going to open up God's word and, 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 and seek him. So then the question is, how can we take what we know about God and get people to see what he is like? Um, how do we invite our friends, family members, and coworkers um, 
into this meaningful experience that we have. Uh, I think I think some time ago it would have been very easy to just invite people to church or invite people to a Bible study group, and um, oftentimes people would respond positively. Uh, th- that's no longer the case. So today I'm going to share some ideas with you. So some things to consider uh, as we begin. Uh, these six approaches can be mixed and matched. It's not really a one-size-fits-all. Um, you don't have to accept all of the models. Uh, some of these models are going to challenge your understanding of how God works. Um, and every model has its strengths and its weaknesses. Now, you may hear something today and think... Uh, that's not what God wants, or that's not how God works. And, and that's okay to disagree. Um, and I just encourage you to prayerfully look at the examples that I share, um, and, 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 and especially the examples from Scripture, and, and to prayerfully just kind of go through those examples. I hope that you'll see um, just how far God is willing to go uh, to touch the lives of those that He's trying to reach. So I'm going to start each model with God's revelation, and the reason why is because if we can see how God shows himself, um, then we can start forming ideas as to how to share that revelation. So for example, um, and this is not true, but if we found out that God's primary uh, mode of revelation is through dreams, then a lot of our religious practices would revolve around sleep. Uh, I might say, uh, eat a pizza, take a nap, and uh, tell me what happens when you wake up. And this is because God reveals himself through dreams. So we're going to start each model with how God reveals himself, and then we're going to uh, explore what that might look like in practice. So let's begin. Uh, the first model is going to be the counter-cultural model. And um, maybe a summary of this is uh, just that this model states that God primarily reveals himself through his word. Uh, this model examines the current context, culture, or worldview, and it hones in on the practices that are anti-gospel and anti-life. It then offers this radically different worldview through Scripture, through the Bible. Um, and this, what this model does is it, it allows Scripture to take the lead so that the context is then shaped, or I should say reshaped, um, and formed by the reality of the Bible, uh, and not the other way around. So there are a lot of examples of this uh, in Scripture. Uh, the first one that I will look at with you, or really the, the only one in this example that I'll look at with you today, um, let me see if I can get this to work, are the Ten Commandments. And if you look at the Ten Commandments, and especially uh, the time period in which the Ten Commandments were given to uh, Israel as they're wandering through uh, the days of, of, I guess, antiquity, um, you you see the culture around Israel as um, a polytheistic uh, culture. There's lots of polygamy. There's no universal moral code. Um, and so when you look at the Ten Commandments, and f- forgive the uh, the Roy Kim um, abbreviated version of the Ten Commandments, uh, but these these commandments were incredibly countercultural. Uh, when God gave Moses um, the Ten Commandments, uh, when God gave uh, the Ten Commandments to Moses to pass on to Israel, um, there was this promise of revelation associated with these commands. Um, if you think back to Scripture and the the original 
I guess, mission that God had for Moses. Moses was supposed to take Israel on this journey through the wilderness from Egypt all the way to modern-day Palestine. And as Moses was given this monumental task of leading this whole nation, um, Moses has these genuine concerns of, how is this going to work? And so Moses has this conversation with God in Exodus 33, verse 16. And you can see here as you read the passage, Moses wanted reassurance and proof that God had picked Israel and set them apart from every nation. And so he asks God, uh, what will distinguish us from all the other nations? And so when we continue on reading um, in, in the book of Exodus, we get to Exodus chapter 34, and this is what God says. Um, when, when Moses says, God, how do I know that you're going to go with us? How do I know that you're going to reveal your presence, that you're going to connect yourself with Israel and make it a special nation? God's response to Moses is, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablet, uh, tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning and then come up to Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. So when God asks Moses to chisel out two stone tablets, he's about to write the Ten Commandments and give them to Moses. Now, often the Ten Commandments uh, are depicted as being written on two separate stones, four commandments on one side and then six commandments on the other side. Uh, this is probably not accurate as to how the commandments actually looked. Um, if you turn to Exodus chapter 32, verse 15, the Bible says that um, the commandments were inscribed on both sides front and back. Um, so the commandments were written rather than four commandments on one stone and six commandments on the other. It was probably more likely that um, you had one copy of the commandments on one stone and a second copy of the commandments on the second stone. And what's being implied here is that um, there's kind of this uh, agreement or this contract that is being made between God and Israel. And so God says, Moses, write two, uh, bring two tablets of stone. There's going to be one copy for me and a second copy for you. Um, as you read through the rest of Exodus chapter 34, it explains in detail this covenant that God is trying to establish between himself and his people. And, and God's revelation is based on his people being willing to adopt this countercultural approach to life. Uh, the ten, ten Commandments were a guide um, to, uh, excuse me, the Ten Commandments were there to guide and direct the daily decisions of Israel. And, and through their faithfulness, God would then in return show himself as God establishing himself, um, excuse me, establishing Israel as a nation. And as you read through the story of um, the Exodus, you see God doing exactly that. He protects Israel. He performs miracles. Um, he is very present uh, with the nation. And as a result, uh, Israel gets established uh, in, in Canaan. So this is what it this is what this model looks like in practice. Um, there are so many countercultural practices in Scripture. Uh, the, the Ten Commandments are one of them. Um, many of these examples, at first glance, may seem outdated uh, when practiced in our current context.
Um, but the idea of God is very countercultural. Um, when you consider uh, the the environment that we we live in, or the context that we live in, just the idea of saying "I believe in God" is is incredibly different. Uh, my my eight year old comes home from school uh, saying, "Hey, people at my my school they don't believe in God. Uh, they don't believe that God created the earth." And it's kind of funny when he shares because he's kind of exasperated, like, "Oh, why don't they believe?" Um, and, and you know, he'll say things like, "You know, we didn't come from monkeys. God created us," and and. You know, I've I've never told my son um, to witness for Jesus, uh, and and I know that sounds a bit weird because I'm a pastor and like I should be telling him go witness for Jesus, right? But I just I have never told either of my sons uh, I want you to go share the gospel. I want you to go witness to your friends. Um, but what I've realized is that this naturally happens because both of our boys are like PKs times two. And <laughs> in a lot of ways, that, that presents a lot of cultural differences in their lives just because of the way that Jinha and I have structured our lives. Um, and, and, and it's kind of interesting because Micah knows exactly who at school believes in Jesus. When I pick him up and we're walking through the school grounds, he'll point people out to me and he'll see, I'll see that person. Uh, they, they believe in Jesus. That person, they, they don't believe in Jesus. And, you know, there are times where I was just so curious as to what kind of conversations is Micah having with these kids that he knows who who is and who is not a believer. And, you know, there was a point in time where I kind of had to say, hey, just slow down there, buddy. It's, you know, I just want to find out what kind of things are you guys talking about? And as he shared, I realized he was going around and arguing with his friends. And I was like, you know what, if people don't agree with you, it's okay. You know, you believe things that are different and, you know, people have different opinions. That's, you know, we need to be comfortable with with that. Now, on one hand, it may seem that the countercultural model or mindset or approach is, is, is abrasive, but um, the countercultural model is also important because it presents what we believe in such a stark contrast to what the world knows. Um, and in the midst of that contrast, God can then work and reveal himself. You know, while some of Adventism's countercultural teachings can be abrasive, um, some of our countercultural teachings are really valuable. Uh, for example, our, our health practices are very different. And because they are different, we've been highlighted in secular magazines. And I, I know I've referred to this, um, several times before, but it just, it's a good example. And so I just, reintroduce this idea. Um, you know, the National Geographic is a secular um, scientific magazine that is very not Christian. Um, but they did this series of articles on, uh, the, they did this series of articles and studies on blue zones, and they found that Seventh-day Adventists in uh, Southern California live longer than any other community in America. And so they highlighted um, the Seventh-day Adventist Church because of the way that we, we live our lives. Forbes magazine also wrote an article, uh, how can the oldest people in America's blue zones, uh, how, how do they make their money last? And so, you know, we've gained the attention of these secular magazines that are not interested in religion at all because of our countercultural um, um, practices. So if we search the Bible, 
uh, for more topics that are countercultural and valuable. We can form these connections with those around us and have valuable conversations uh, that draw people closer to God rather than repel people from God. Uh, I think one area of ministry that's been developing over the past few decades is this idea of creation care. Um, it's a Christian ecology movement that focuses on enabling churches to promote uh, the, the, the proper stewardship of, of our earth. You know, prior to the 90s, uh, Christianity wasn't really engaged in environmentalism. Um, and since then, there, there have been symposiums on religion, science, and environment that happen about every two to three years. And these gatherings are interdisciplinary. You have um, clergy that are gathered together. You have scientists that are gathered together. You have activists that are gathered together. Um, these gatherings are interdenominational gatherings, and they really encourage dialogue and debate about climate change. And it's, it's really this interesting space where we have this avenue to actually connect with people who do not believe by saying, we believe that God created the earth. He wants us to take care of it. That, that, that's a very theological statement. And as you read through scripture from uh, Old Testament to New Testament, from Genesis to Revelation, you see so many examples of God um, caring about the land. And I guess just one example would be in the Old Testament where God gave these rules and regulations around how God wanted Israel to um, practice their agriculture. Uh, there are times where he would say, I want you to rest the land. Uh, I want you to take care of the land. Don't overwork it. Don't overuse it. And so there are all these rules around um, how Israel was supposed to take care of the earth. There are many other examples, but I'll just leave it at that for now. Now, there are some weaknesses of the countercultural model as well. When using this approach, it's important to be countercultural and not anti-cultural. Uh, I think it's easy to demonize any context or culture that we critique, and especially when uh, we look at some of the language, um, especially from some of the older translations of Scripture, it's very easy to be um, quite severe in our critique of, of culture. I think it's easy to be careless uh, with negativity, and it's important to really understand the context that we're trying to reach. Um, uh, another weakness of the countercultural model is the tendency to withdraw from the world uh, rather than engage with it. Our, our influence becomes limited the more we isolate ourselves from people uh, from who God wants us to reach. <clears throat> so Jesus says that we should be in the world but not of the world. And I think often this isolation can lead to an attitude uh, that leads to uh, exclusivism, which can skew our perception of, um, of reality, of what's actually happening. So that's the countercultural model. The, the next model that I want to share with you is the translational model. And um, I, I spent some time on this last time, so I'll, I'll be brief in summarizing, um, summarizing this model. Uh, the translational model also takes a high view of scripture um, in that it allows people to accept the important parts of Bible uh, of the Bible uh, that are essential to faith. Uh, it takes these central themes of the Bible and it says these are super con uh, contextual. In other words, these are applicable to uh, every context and every culture. It supposes that God's revelation comes through these essential truths, um, and at the same time, it allows the practitioner the freedom to discard the bits of Scripture that may seem irrelevant to the context. 
So here's a scriptural example. Uh, one may wonder, when is God? Thank you. I was just thinking, oh man, I need some water. Uh, Jen, how so attentive. One may wonder, when is God ever okay? When is he ever comfortable with people only accepting parts of biblical truth? I mean, if it, if it all wasn't important, why is it written there? Now, I, I gave a fairly lengthy explanation of this one last time, but I'll just share a short example of this today. In the Old Testament, there's a story of uh, a captain or a commander uh, named Naaman, um, and who, who is the commander of this foreign army. He's not an Israelite, but he has leprosy, and he hears about the prophet Elijah, uh, Elisha and his ability to perform miraculous healing. And so he visits Elisha and learns about God and gets healed of his leprosy. When you look at the conclusion of the story, um, as Naaman experiences his healing uh, in Second Kings chapter five verse fifteen, it says, "Then Naaman and all of his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, "Now I know that there is no God in all the world except Israel." And so here, at this critical part in Naaman's life, he accepts this essential truth. He accepts the sovereignty and the divinity of God, and he kind of he he comes to this realization: there is one true God. But notice what happens as the story progresses. If you look just a few verses down, Second Kings chapter five, verses eighteen and nineteen, it says. Um, but may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. And here Naaman is talking to Elisha. So he's saying, please give me this one concession. When my master enters the temple of Rimon to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm, and I have to bow there also, when I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. And Elisha says, go in peace. Now, Naaman serves as a commander for a king who does not believe in God. So he asks Elisha the prophet for this one concession. Elisha, can you forgive me for bowing to an idol? And Elisha says, yeah, that's okay. When I read this story, I think that's the wrong answer. I mean, the Ten Commandments clearly says you shall, have no, uh, you shall not make any graven images uh, before me. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Right? That is clearly what the Ten Commandments says. So Elisha says to this foreign commander, it's okay to break part of the Second Commandment. Now that just sounds crazy, and yet here's this example in Scripture. Now, this way of approaching God's revelation is important because it steps away from an all-or-nothing approach to God. Um, the mindset that you must accept all and do all is a tremendous responsibility, and often it doesn't produce faith. It, it produces fear and hypocrisy. And so this example is important because it shows that God is willing to work with us in our less-than-ideal circumstances. While we are imperfect, God is still willing to reveal who he is. Like Naaman was from an idolatrous country, and even though he wasn't willing to convert his king and he wanted to bow down to the idol of his king, God still heals him. It's a very significant point. So here's what this idea or this model looks like in practice. Um, we can apply this by identifying moments when we can take 
parts of our faith and make those parts very accessible to the community so they can uh, encounter partial revelations of God. And while this may not be ideal, it's better than nothing because at least people are getting exposed to God and God is willing to reveal himself. There's some things that are available to us that allow us the ability to do this. For example, Elia Wellness has produced some excellent online courses. And if you want to take a look at their website, um, I've placed a QR code in the middle of that slide. And so if you want to scan that, it'll take you to the Elia Wellness um, website, which shows the different programs. Some of those programs consist of courses on forgiveness, courses on mood improvement, nutrition and health. Um, the one that I blocked there is a course on retirement. Um, there, there, there's also a course on um, handling, handling stress and anxiety. The beauty of these courses is that they're done in the context of community, uh, which introduces participants to people in the church. Um, I found that this content is very useful. It's very friendly. The language is inclusive. Um, Last year, we uh, started this uh, Live More Happy group, and, and there was such a good engagement with people um, who are not regular attendees or who are not Christian. And, and you know, embedded in this program, uh, Live More, were just these concepts of um, of, of uh, the Adventist health message. Uh, also embedded in this program was the concept of the importance of community and being connected together. And, and what a great way of introducing the church as this community. You know, if, if we had a group of uh, people in the church who are connecting with people outside the church through this program, and the individuals outside the church thought, man, I just wish I could plug into a supportive community, how useful it is to have a program like this with members that are already there saying, hey, we're a part of our church community, come join us. Now, there are also challenges to the translational model. For example, how does one determine what is essential and what is non-essential? Um, you know, how many of you would agree with what Elisha did in allowing Naaman to bow, uh, bow down to an idol? You know, honestly, if I were to put myself in Elisha's shoes, I, I wouldn't have been able to say, go in peace. I would have said, you need to pray about this. By the way, the Bible says don't bow down to idols. And then just kind of like, leave it at that. Uh, there's another serious challenge to the translational model in assuming that God's revelation only comes through propositional uh, truth. Uh, God speaks through nature. God speaks through experience. God speaks through people. Um, so it's important to be open to the different ways in which God reveals himself because as we open ourselves and broaden our understanding of God's revelation, we can then broaden our um, definition of witnessing. We can broaden our, our uh, approach to how we connect people with uh, God and his truth. So the final uh, model that I want to share with you today is the praxis model. Uh, this model states that God reveals himself first through our actions, uh, and God is known when we do God's will. So here's a scriptural example or a scriptural reference. Uh, James chapter 2, verse 24, it says, So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. The Bible author James writes that we come to know God's peace, not by what we believe, but by what we do. 
there's this completion of revelation that takes place um, once we have accomplished an action. Without the action, our knowledge is incomplete. And so if I were to summarize this again, I would just say what you do changes what you see. What you do changes what you see. So the, the, the phrase action speaks louder than words is appropriate in this space. Uh, there's a whole theology of practice that has led to the development of social, uh, so, social welfare agencies such as ADRA. And here's their website here. Um, you feel free to scan the QR code to take a look at the website. Um, ADRA provides support for the homeless. Um, it provides disaster relief for those who may have been affected by flooding or bushfires or drought. Uh, it provides education to refugees, support to women and children who are victims of domestic abuse. And the list continues. And you can see what projects um, are are. are uh, run by ADRA. You can see what projects need funding, and you can also uh, see what projects are local to you. Um, something more local that you can plug into uh, is the support for the homeless here um, with the Melbourne City Adventist Church. Uh, once every six weeks, our church uh, collects um, seasonal goods and passes them out to people who are on the streets. Um, Every Saturday night, uh, there's support for the homeless at Queen Vic Markets. Uh, Daniel from our church goes every weekend to provide support and friendship to those who are on the streets. Um, back when we used to go um, to the Queen Vic Markets on Friday nights, uh, Shendon and Naomi would go regular, uh, go regularly to provide support for those who are on the streets. And and I think one reason why this uh, model of uh, experiencing God's uh, truth and also sharing God's truth is so powerful is because uh, this is such a great way of connecting with our community and those around us. You know, one time Shendon shared with his hairdresser how he was spending his Friday evening and his hairdresser said, hey, that sounds great. Can I come? And so the next time around, she came to the Queen Vic Markets and she gave free haircuts to the homeless. Then she told her friend about how she was spending her Friday evenings. And the next time around, her friend said, hey, can I join you? And he had he had gone around and uh, talked to Meyer's department store and gathered clothes that they were going to um, send off to uh, op shops. And he was able to bring boxes of clothing from Meyer's and hand them out to uh, people who were on the streets. You know, there's something about doing good that strikes a chord in the human heart. You know, about a month ago, we passed out jackets, and uh, our former neighbor saw our posts on Facebook and asked if she could come join us. And so she joined us in passing out um, jackets to people who are on the streets, and she brought her son as well. And and after we had finished passing out the jackets, I sent her a message just saying, uh, thanking her for her time and um, just really and the con contributions that she made as she brought a lot of goods to pass out. And she said, no worries. I look forward to the next, uh, the, the next time I'm already planning, um, to coming then as well. You know, I, I couldn't really think of a downside of the praxis model. I, I think it's something that, that is quite compelling and, um, it, it's just such a great way of being able to experience God and share God at the same time. You know, as I've shared a few different approaches to witnessing, uh, I hope you've found some new avenues to be able to connect your world 
um, outside of God with your mission for God. Um, next time I'll be sharing three additional um, approaches to, or three additional models and approaches to to sharing your faith. And so, um, yeah, I look forward to connecting with you then, hopefully in person. Um, at this time, we're going to be transitioning to our Zoom um, catch-ups as usual for those of you who uh, would like to join us in and are not familiar with the with the password, feel free to message us personally, or you can message our Facebook, and we'll make sure and give you access um, to our to our Zoom room. Um, would you join me in prayer as we finish for today, Father God? As we've explored these different ways in which you reveal yourself, I pray that you would help us to be able to connect with you personally um, in each of these avenues, whether it's through uh, challenging us through uh, scripture that is uh, different from what we are used to, or whether it's us just prioritizing bits of truth that we can apply into our lives here and there, or whether it's living out the truth. Um, I pray that you would just be able to show uh, your presence and that uh, just as so many of the people through scripture were able to see you as God and to be able to testify of your goodness, your ma- your grace, your power. Um, I pray that uh, we would be able to do the same and to be able to invite uh, the, the world outside of the church um, to, to know you as well. So we thank you for hearing our prayers, uh, for we ask these things in your name. Amen.